You're listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we work to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear the good news about the person and work of Jesus and as we scatter to share it. We hope that you enjoy. Let's say you go to the shop to buy a greeting card. You know, a Valentine's Day card, an anniversary card, a birthday card, a get well soon card, something like that. Something for a special occasion. In my family, there are certain people who like to buy these things when they are on sale. You know that people are going to have birthdays at some point, so why not stock up? People will get sick and you'll want to get them a get well soon card. You buy a card that says, happy 66th birthday, but then you know a six-year-old who has a party. Great. Take off a six and you have happy sixth birthday. Or maybe you have someone that uh, is getting older and you're at the bottom of the stockpile of cards and all you have left is funeral cards. No problem. When the card says, sorry for your loss, you just simply add the words of another year. Happy 43rd birthday. (laughs) This letter that we are beginning to read today is not a greeting card, okay? But it was sent on a special occasion. Uh, Kind of a special one, I suppose. False teachers are mixing up a young church. And the man that Paul has tasked with dealing with these teachers and their teachings is a younger man named Timothy. While doing this... Paul wants Timothy himself and those who he is ministering to to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Or in other words, Paul will say, to fight the good fight of the faith. In 1 Timothy, we will be seeing our faith instructed or taught to us. So let's dive in together starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, 
for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Let me pray for us. Almighty, eternal, merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask that you would shed a light on this text this morning, that you would open up our hearts and minds to it so that we can truly understand it or begin to understand your word this morning. God, we ask that our lives would be conformed to what we understand from this text and that what we do, what we say, how we respond to this text, that it would be pleasing to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't want to get weighed down in details this morning. It, it may be necessary to go back and address the timeline of the New Testament as we go. The book of Acts is where we go most often to do this. However, this letter to Timothy was written sometime shortly after the completion of the book of Acts. So, to give you just a quick biography of Timothy, here is what we know from our Bibles. It was in Paul's second missionary journey, when he was traveling through the Roman Empire to tell people about Jesus, that Timothy started to travel with him. We see this in Acts chapter 16. Though it may have been in Paul's first missionary journey where Timothy's family was affected by the gospel. We learn also from this passage that Timothy's mom is a Jew who became a Christian and his father is a Greek. Now being part Jew and part Greek made Timothy a perfect missionary companion and church planter candidate to travel along with Paul. So, Timothy does become a, a trusted companion of Paul and a messenger carrying his letters from church to church. In fact, we know that he delivers the letter of what we know as 1 Corinthians. As we study Timothy, the book, we will see that he's a good oak, but maybe not the most dynamic or energetic leader. This is not a bad thing. It takes all kinds However, it does take different types of leaders to accomplish different things, and later on in the in Scripture we see that Titus is called in to replace Timothy in a task. Also, not a bad thing. When Timothy is leading, he is meant to be giving guiding principles to young Christians and new churches so that they will remain firmly anchored in the gospel of Jesus. But now, before I bore you to death with historical details from Acts, which are interesting, and we will get there one day, let's first shake our big idea out for the beginning of 1 Timothy. And here it is. The good news about Jesus is the center of our faith. Let nothing separate you from him. 
The good news about Jesus is the center of our faith. Let nothing separate you from him. All right. So verse one, this letter is from Paul. Paul is an apostle. Not like the apostles that we have today, though. <laughs> and also not like the apostle Peter, who we have read from before. Paul's situation is a little different than Peter's because he did not travel with Jesus and he was not one of Jesus' original disciples. No, Jesus had to work on Paul a bit differently. He had to blind him and humble him before Paul began to understand. And this is why Paul starts the letter by stating how he got this position of apostle. Verse 1, it was commanded of him. Now that might seem like a throwaway word, like Paul is saying, God has called me to this and that's it. But more is happening here. This is reminding Timothy and whoever else might read this letter that Paul has been given a special role like the other apostles to make certain that the early church was getting off on the correct foot and also to write out a set of teachings for those who would become Christians in the future, like you and me. Paul is also saying this to remind Timothy that the task that he has been called to is a serious one, which is under the authority of Jesus himself. Another reason Paul talks about his apostleship is because he's going to talk about people who are taking authority and claiming to be teachers who have not been given that role and who do not know what they are talking about just like our quote-unquote apostles today. So, Paul is one of Jesus' apostles by the command of God who saved him through Jesus, who is our only hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. We already know from Acts chapter 16 that Paul is not Timothy's dad. Timothy, though, seems to be closer to him than real blood family. This is the way that it should be for you and for me. As Christians, as Christian brothers and sisters and fellow church members, there will come a time that we are more real family members to one another than our own blood family. That should be the case, and it's not like this all the time, but there are beautiful little windows of time where this is true. It doesn't mean that we forget about our blood family, but Paul here is expressing something that is deep and full of love and encouragement to his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm always behind you, ready to support you and push you forward. I'm here for you. And he finishes this greeting by reminding Timothy what they share in Christ. Grace, that is a gift that we do not deserve. Mercy, that is the opposite of what we earned for ourselves through our sin. And peace, knowing that all of our accounts have been paid off, paid in full by Jesus. Once again, if you have been in church for any period of time, this all may sound like Dear so-and-so, I hope you're doing well. But it is much more than that. Paul here is speaking the words of God. 
that is truths that are ours because of Jesus to his young friend and co-worker because he has the authority to do that. And so do you. You share in that authority to speak the grace, mercy, and peace of Jesus to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have the authority to share that good news with your neighbor. You can speak on behalf of God in that same way. In fact, you not only have the authority to do that, you have the responsibility to do that. On the other hand, you are not meant to speak for God in a bunch of other ways. And this is where the problem lies that Timothy has been sent to deal with. Verses 3 and 4. Paul is reminding Timothy of his purpose in the place that he has been sent to. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than God's plan which operates by faith. Why does Timothy need to be reminded of this? Well, we actually can't answer that just now, but let's start with a simple observation. This is not a fun job that Timothy has been given to do. Uh, hey, Timothy, I'm busy right now, and I need you to handle something for me. Can you do that? Great. Go tell these false teachers that they're wrong and should remain quiet instead of speaking their ignorance. <laughs> Not a fun job. What can we make out of this so far? What is the problem Timothy is facing? Well, we have to read closely because we don't actually get an account from Timothy. We are reading the reply to something that Timothy has wrote, written, or said. There are people teaching different doctrine. Doctrine, we've talked about this before, is a set of beliefs, a set of teachings. And there is something in the church in Ephesus, uh, there is someone in the church in Ephesus who has a set of beliefs and teachings that go against the teachings given to the apostles by Jesus. This is not good. <laughs> what could these teachings be? Well, at this point in our reading, anything. These teachings could literally be anything that stand between the believer and and Jesus, anything that starts to take over the Christian's mind and heart and lead you away from the good news of the person and work of Jesus, it could be anything that is like that. <laughs> These teachings could be something so simple and seemingly good that it may not even seem like a threat to someone who is new in the faith or someone who is mature in the faith. But here is something that we can almost say for certain. Uh, just throughout all of the New Testament and throughout all of church history, there are two primary sets of teachings that happen over and over again throughout all of church history, even up to today. One set of teachings usually comes from someone who thinks that they are some kind of Christian. But... They will try to take away the godness or the humanness of Jesus. This is why we always confess together that Jesus is truly God and truly man, two natures in one person. 
And it can be subtle and sneaky. It may be done in ignorance. It may be done because the crafty work of Satan is is gotten into someone's life and is now coming out in their work. But as soon as you start to take away one of those true natures of Jesus, you lose the good news. If Jesus were simply a good little Jewish boy, then his death was a good death, sure, but not one that could cover your sin. And if he were simply a spirit that was made to look like a man, he did not actually carry our flesh, and he did certainly not carry with him our sin in his flesh. So that is one set of teachings that places something between us and Jesus' death for us. The second set of teachings usually comes from actual Christians. And it's always popping up, and it's related to our justification and our sanctification. Now, those are two big words, but let's break them down a little bit. Justification is when you are made completely whole and perfect in the sight of God. It is when you have been made right by the blood of Jesus. His work on the cross for you and me justifies you. This is your salvation. This is how you know that you are safe and saved. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the ongoing work of God uh, through you by way of his Holy Spirit. It is the daily refinement of your life, which is already safely hidden and saved in Jesus. The best way to confuse a Christian of any age or level of maturity is to tell them, well, that of course Jesus saves you as you do the good works laid out for you. Or, of course you can know that you were saved, but not through the seal of the Lord's Supper or your baptism. You know, two pictures that Jesus gave to you as promises of what he's already done for you. No, 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 no. You can know that you were saved by how holy your thoughts have been this past week and how holy they're going to be this week. Anytime something that you do begins to get added into your justification, there is a wedge that is beginning to be driven between you and the comfort of your salvation through Jesus' saving work done for you on the cross. And it's these two different sets of teachings that are all around you, if you open up your eyes to them. And be careful, Christian, because it may be being taught to you through music that you're listening to, or preachers on YouTube, or the faith channel, or your own past. And whatever those teachers intend, the devil uses them to their fullest to make sure that you place all of your fear, love, and trust in anything other than the finished work of Christ for you on the cross. Back to the text. So tell certain people not to teach other sets of beliefs or teachings, but also order them to pay no attention to myths and endless genealogies. Myths during this time means something that is not true, but everyone chooses to believe anyway. 
you may not know where something like this fits into the Bible, but there are myths that I happily believe and don't hurt anything. And there are myths that I believe and are clearly wrong according to Scripture and could damage my faith. For instance, I believe that Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster that lives in a lake in Scotland, is real. Why do I believe that? For absolutely no good reason at all, except for the fact that I think it would be really cool. Now, it's not hurting anyone. Well, unless Nessie is a real lake monster and eats people, I guess. It's not hurting anyone. The very least, it makes me look or sound foolish. However, Tara and I were talking about something that both her and I were taught at one point, and yet it is something that is not true. And that is that the Apostle John that, you know, wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation, we were taught at some point that he never actually died, but instead was taken up into heaven like the prophet Elijah. Why were we taught this? For no good reason. <laughs> this is not what scripture teaches, actually. What this myth did was prop up a speculative, that is something that's guessing, a speculative uh, idea, something that could not be proven, and it was an irresponsible teaching that does not seem to fit into the Bible or originate from it. Why could this matter? Because this is Jesus' right-hand man in the Gospels. This is something that people were demanding was true as an addition to faith in Jesus that had nothing to do with, with his life or death for us. This is something that distracts and detracts from what Jesus did. To speculate on mythical things is unhelpful and can, in fact, work against someone's faith. And what about genealogies? Once again, we could guess that this relates to finding secret knowledge or secret patterns in the family trees of the Bible. And yet we have plenty of examples today of how this works. Go to a bookstore or go to the hospice shop and look at the books. Go to the Santa shop and look at the books. Don't buy them, okay? I buy all the good ones. If you want some, you can come up to the office and take as many as you'd like. But look at the books. And there you will find books which claim to be Christian and yet they are finding secret patterns in the text. And they're finding secret patterns in the moons or in diets or secret prayers or the right way of thinking that's going to complete your faith. Maybe the secret order of events that will lead to the end of all things. And it'll keep your eyes fixed on the news instead of on Jesus. Look, every little cult that calls themselves Christian has some secret knowledge that can lead you to a higher level. Every big cult has that as well. And this secret knowledge works like a puzzle that will never strengthen your faith. 
And more than that, it will draw you away from the cross of Jesus, the one place your assurance can always be found, the one place where your faith is always securely rested. This kind of secret knowledge will place you on unsteady ground, like loose rocks on the side of a mountain. They will lead to death, not life. They will lead you away from Jesus, not to him. They are, in fact, antichrist. So to your friends or neighbors who follow these things, someone has the responsibility to speak truth to them. Maybe you have a neighbor who is in something that they call a church, but they must eat a certain way to be saved, or dress a certain way to be saved, or give a certain amount of money each week to be saved, or must believe Jesus plus anything else to be saved. And it is guaranteed that whoever is teaching them that, whoever has written that book that they've read, or preached that sermon that they've listened to, is being used by Satan to separate a Christian from their faith. I was just in a conversation with someone yesterday who has good friends that claim Jesus as their Savior, but also now insist that Jewish practices must be included in the Christian way. Things like you have to pronounce Jesus as Yeshua for, or you must wash your hands in this way or that, or you must observe certain yearly Jewish meals and celebrations as a Christian. And here's the kicker, neither of these people are Jewish by blood. This is not something that their family has done in the past or a cultural thing that has been handed down to them. This is something that they are adding back into Christian practice to supplement what Jesus has done for them. This is foolish and this is anti-Christ. This is false teaching. This is the type of thing that Timothy is here in Ephesus to address. Continuing in verse 4, we read that these things lead away from Jesus and the truth of the Bible. They lead to speculation that does not work to understand what actually can be understood in Scripture about what God is doing and has done in the world. It is taking what we can know and throwing it out the window in favor of something that is most likely not the point of the biblical teaching. It is wasting time and energy and the lives of people on things that do not matter when we should instead be striving to do good work in the places that we have been put to do good work. I'm not going to get all the way through chapter 1, verse 11 today. Um, so let's finish up here with verses 5 through 7. Now, when Timothy does work with these people and correct them in silence, ignorant teaching, how should he do it? With a big stick beating down every idea that does not come from his mouth? No, verse 5 lets us know how Paul wants Timothy to address them and also why they need to be addressed. Love. Now, the goal of this corrective instruction and responsibility, Paul says, is love. Love because it's not loving to let someone teach others something that will damn them, both the teacher and the hearer. 
The kind of love Paul is talking about, he also defines for us. The kind of love that is needed with this kind of corrective teaching comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart is one that has been made right by Jesus. A pure heart is one that has been forgiven of its sin. You want a person who is working out their salvation with fear and trembling to do this task, not someone who is working for their salvation and hoping that with a little help, Jesus can become good news. A good conscience is a Holy Spirit-given gift that does not roll around in sin like, like a pig in mud, <laughs> but instead is seen in a person who knows they are a sinner and will fail. But also, that same person is quick to repent and quick to run to Jesus and desires to put that sin which used to rule over them to death. Someone who is not weighed down by the guilt of sin. This is what a good conscience is. And a sincere faith. That is a, a mark of a person that is not teaching Christians because their ego is larger than the moon. <laughs> and it's not teaching to fill their wallet. And it's not teaching so that they can go to sleep at night knowing that their identity and value has been found in what they do. This love that should lead us to speak the truth lovingly is marked by hearts, heads, and hands that believe in the truth of the gospel and are being changed by it. It is marked by, once again, hearts, that is beliefs and emotions, heads, thoughts and ideas, and hands, loving our neighbors, that is being shaped by the good news of what Jesus has done for you. This is the correct alternative to the people who Timothy has come across and is and are described in verses 6 and 7. These false teachers have turned from those three things to rely on fruitless discussion. They desire to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying. And they insist on things that they are ignorant about. That is something I hope no one could say of me. I hope those things are not something that someone could say of you. To have fruitless discussion about Jesus, something with no redeemable qualities, that is a grievous evil. At my office space, my friend Jacques uses the name of Jesus in vain, and yet I would rather any of you hear that than I would you hear lies about our Savior from the lips of preachers who seek their own benefit or seek to move you away from Jesus little by little. I would rather you use exercise and healthy eating plans from a devout pagan to discipline your body than I would you use the law of God as a tool for your salvation. The law has a purpose, to guide and condemn. Those who teach otherwise speak in ignorance and should be ignored at the very least and corrected if possible. Your heart, head, and hands should be shaped and changed by the good news about the person and work 
of Jesus. This works itself out in love that can guide and gently correct others. The good news about Jesus is the center of our faith. Let no false or imposter object, teaching, or idea separate you from him. 1 Timothy has much to offer us as Christians and as a church. Dig into it little by little. If you're a quick reader, it'll take you about 15 minutes to read the whole letter. If you're slower like me, it'll take you about 25. And if you get distracted like me, maybe it'll take you the whole day walking past your Bible and biting off a little bit at a time. No matter how you get it done, I would encourage you to read it. Read it over and over and over again so that as we study this text together, you're comfortable with it. You're familiar with it. And... God the Holy Spirit will 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 begin to to root you in these words and that is a good thing that's something to be desired but know this Jesus has lived a perfect life for you and died a perfect death on your behalf he has taken all your sin on himself and he has forgiven you you stand before the father with all the holiness he requires and the Spirit is working in you at this very moment to give you the strength and wisdom necessary to be faithful in what God has placed in front of you. And when you go astray, when you turn away, there he is to turn you, to repent you and bring you back to Jesus. And to that, I say, Amen, and thank God. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.